The late Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Carmack McCarthy, wrote All the Pretty Horses, the first volume of his Border Trilogy, which was made into a feature film. It is a modern-day Western in which a 16-year-old John Grady Cole and his 17-year-old companion, Lacey Rollins, leave home in Texas and enter Mexico on horseback. It's modern in that it is in current times. The parents of John Grady are divorced. His family farm that his grandfather owned for seven, had had seven generations and the farm was now sold after the grandfather died. And so he's young and he's kind of setting out into the world to experience the world, whatever the world brings to him. They camp for the night and Rollins asked Grady, you ever think about dying? Yeah, some. You? Yeah, some. You think there's a heaven? Yeah, don't you? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. You think you can believe in heaven if you don't believe in hell? I guess you can believe what you want to. Rollins nodded. You think about all the stuff that can happen to you he said, there ain't no end to it. You fixing to get religion on us? No, just sometimes I wonder if I wouldn't be better off if I did. You ain't fixing to quit me, are you? I said I would, wouldn't. John Grady nodded. These two companions are setting off on their journey, not knowing where it will lead. But at their very young age, they are somehow aware that all kinds of things, or stuff as they call it, can happen in life. Some of it is good, some of it is bad, and sometime they're going to die. Sooner or later, they are going to die. They wonder if a little religion might not help. I happened to read this dialogue as I was preparing this sermon on the very difficult the deep chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Rome is probably as close as Paul comes to writing a systematic theology. Unlike many of his letters, it does not address a particular issue or concern of a local church, although it is addressed to the church in Rome. Among many churches, it is very significant. It is this church history that we now know there have been eminent theologians such as Martin Luther and Karl Barth who wrote profoundly on this letter. And in it, there are many things, but Paul writes, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It is a conclusory statement that asserts something we know and that all, not just some things, work together for what is called good. It does not tell us how we are to evaluate the good or when. There are other aspects of the chapter that are difficult and that they are used to support the doctrine of predestination and imply at least God's foreknowledge of all particular events or even that they are matters of God's will. However, this text still has also provided comfort for others. In the text, when bad things, in the book, when bad things happen to good people, Rabbi Harold Kushner deals with the 
Hebrew scriptures aspect of this. But it does raise the question that goes throughout our scriptures. When bad things happen to good people, how can we, under words from the Apostle Paul, really know that it's going to work out for good? Since retirement, I've had the opportunity to keep up with classmates from high school, college, law school, and seminary. I grew up here in this community, and all of my advanced degrees are from institutions located on Route 23, running through High Street in Columbus. <laughs> Thus, I have many friends from school who remain in this area. And my mom and dad were in the class of 1940 at Upper Arlington. And when I joined the staff of this church, some members of the, my parents' class uh, here, were members here, and they would include me in some luncheons at the Ohio State Golf Course. I thought it was pretty cool they got together and included me. Sure enough, one of the joys of my retirement is simply that, keeping up with friends. Now, it's a cliche that groups of retirees, when we get together, one, talk about our ailments, and two, grouse about how things are going to, a hell, to hell in a handbasket <laughs> in the world. And I have to say, this is often tempting. There's some truth in it. Many people know that I love music of all kinds. One of the great joys of my retirement from the staff is being in the Cambridge Choir directed by Amy Blosser. However, what most people don't know about my love of music is that it includes country music. My son-in-law, Jason Downey, took me to hear George Strait in Ohio Stadium. And country music, as you all know, provides a lot of real-life themes. And one theme that has spoken to me in my retirement is Toby Keith's, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. <laughs> but I have found that in many ways that's not exactly true. I have found that when I have looked back, I see things with more understanding. And on the larger societal issues, where everything seems to be going the wrong way, I can look back on times when it looked the same way and we got through it. When I was in my 20s, much older than John Grady and Lacey, I went to Washington, D.C. after law school to work for a trade association, which had offices across the street from the Washington Post. Washington was really where the action was in those days. It was post-Watergate, and there was times uh, that, uh, of much division. I remember looking out the window of my office and seeing all these tractors parked outside the Washington Post. The farmers had come to Washington to protest farm prices, and they decided they'd just drive over to the Post and make their issue known. And it was totally surrounded, and so the way the city dealt with it, because the city has many protests of many kinds through the years, eventually all of those tractors went to the mall, and then they were boxed in on the mall so that my buses so that they could not drive into the streets and yet still have their protest. But it was just one aspect of one issue that was a, very important. I remember I was walking up M Street after getting off the bus on Connecticut Avenue, I had lived in Northwest on Connecticut. And as I walked, I saw Jimmy Carter get out of a car outside the National Education Association. He was there to receive the endorsement of the NEA in his run for president. 
Later, I did see him when he lit up the Christmas tree on the ellipse outside the White House. But I also remember firmly that he had come uh, at a time where uh, he brought a sense of hope. And yet, I also remember getting up in the morning and standing at the bus stop and hearing about how with the uh, effort to free the hostages uh, that were held in Iran had failed in the desert due to a crash of some of the helicopters. So there were times of real disappointment and grief. At the same time, there was hope. It was after the Watergate scandal which brought down Richard Nixon. Gerald Ford had brought some stability, but Jimmy Carter won the election and brought his evangelical Christianity and informality to the White House. But he was defeated by re for re-election by Ronald Reagan. And then the Reagans attended National Presbyterian Church where I had joined. I met Claire in a Bible study at the church. She worked as a lawyer for FDIC across the street from the old executive office building. Our Bible class consisted of young people in their 20s, all of whom had come to Washington to work in government, trade associations, unions, and other lobbies and pressure groups. Louis Evans was the pastor. It was Louis Evans who was the pastor to Jeb Magruder. His book, From Power to Peace, describes how Louis counseled him through the Watergate scandal. He later went to prison, and after completing Princeton Seminary, became executive minister here at First Community. The Reagan stopped coming to National Presbyterian after he was shot at the Washington Hilton. They said the congregation would have to go through uh, metal detectors and security before church on Sunday if the Reagans attended after that. And the Reagans did not want to put the church through that, and so they did not come anymore. But I have distinct memories of literally sitting a few feet away from them in the pew behind them at National Presbyterian. And things changed in a minute after the, uh, the uh, assassination attempt. On the day of the shooting, I remember Claire and I were going to meet for dinner and to watch the NCAA basketball championship between Indiana and North Carolina. It was postponed after the shooting, but Claire and I took the bus going up Connecticut Avenue towards my apartment where we had dinner. And then after dinner, I drove her home to her apartment in southeast Washington. As we went there, we passed the George Washington University Hospital where he was being treated, where Reagan was being treated. There were numerous law enforcement and media vehicles all around the hospital. And so there, that was a time of great uh, concern and great challenge in our country as it is today. But na Nationwide Presbyterian Church was for me at that time and for many a very important part of our lives. Louis Evans, the son of a Presbyterian minister, had a born-again experience, and although NPC was more of a mainline church, it had an evangelical part to it, and that was something that was very new to me. And my experience at First Community was more growing up under liberal Protestantism. However, I benefited greatly from the pastors and preaching at both churches. Before I met Claire, it was a difficult time in my life. I really was fortunate to have a great job in a great city without any debts. 
I worshiped at Washington Cathedral uh, and before joining National Presbyterian. I was going deeper into my faith. However, like many young people, I felt like I was unlucky in love, somewhat confused vocationally, and still living with the grief from some very difficult losses in my life. I remember going up to New York City to visit a friend. This friend suggested I read a book called The Power of Praise. I don't remember the author, but it took the position that one should give thanks to God, even praise God, for the losses or adversity in our lives, since all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. The very text that was read today. And that text has been with me throughout my life, as it is with many people, as they struggle with the whole question of where is God in those times and those circumstances when we struggle. I thought the book was extreme, and I could not believe that God caused adversity, such as losses of all kinds. However, I did relate to the idea that God could bring good out of the most difficult of circumstances. Indeed, now that I am older, I can see the good that has come out of some of the very experiences that I had, even though I cannot believe that God caused them or give thanks and praise for the events themselves. I don't believe a good God causes pain and suffering just to wake us up to what we've got. My father used to say, hindsight is 2020. I think he meant not to beat ourselves up because we didn't make a perfect decision or were wrong about something. However, when we look back, we can reach a better understanding. We had a spiritual searcher here at First Community. He was an Anglo-Catholic priest in the Episcopal tradition. He said that we often back into the future. I remember being in, in Burkhardt Chapel when he literally walked backwards in the aisle. And we only understand that what has happened to us by looking back. And looking back on that text that I read in The Power of Praise, I was angry that this theology was saying that God's calls, caused all things, good and bad, and that we should praise God for it that gave no comfort to me, but I have come to understand that to certain people of faith, the idea that God controls all things or has a plan provides some comfort or at least an explanation. Others on the more liberal or free will side, as I am, find comfort in the idea that God uh, doesn't control or plan everything, but simply is with us in our suffering. But this still, whatever side we take, this still raises the theodicy question of why a good God permits evil. And we argue and struggle with each side of this question. And we are often self-righteous in our response to our brothers and sisters with whom we disagree in religion and in politics, often failing to see that we are talking about two sides of the same coin. Rabbi Harold Kushner asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And yet it also begs the question, why do good things happen to bad people? And how we decide who's good and bad in many ways. 
Reverend Arthur Sanders, a predecessor to, and a mentor to, in pastoral care to Deb Lindsay and to me, once said when people ask, why me? We also can reasonably ask, why not me? And to answer either question, we would need to be God, which we are not. If the book of Job means anything, it means that the problem of pain and suffering in our lives is a mystery. Job was a person of faith and did nothing to warrant the losses and suffering he endured. His friends were dead wrong that somehow he must have done something to bring his losses upon himself. In many ways in the Hebrew scriptures there are texts like Proverbs that say that our acts have consequences. And if you read Proverbs, you get the idea that good people prosper and bad people are judged. But Job, in the same Hebrew scriptures, turns this upside down. Indeed, Job wants to put God in the dock. God in the dock is a, is a title of really what happens in the British legal system. The, the defendant is in the dock and the questions are put to the defendant in the dock. And so God does permit in this parable of, of Job, does permit the question to be asked by Job. Ask why, why me, why this, why all the things that came upon me? And God's response is, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? As some theologians have said, what kind of answer is that? And yet, it's true. Basically, God is God and I am not. Job was not. Thus, whether we are evangelical or liberal in our theology, we are limited in our understanding. We discern as best we can, but must do so in all humility. So where does that leave us? As John Grady and Rollins knew at their young age, Someday they were going to die. That would come sooner or later. Rollins speculated that a little religion might help. We still have our faith, whatever our theological or biblical views. Paul himself preached Christ crucified. And Christ bore everything in life that we experience as human beings. And it says that is God with us. You know, as Jurgen Moltmann said, that's the crucified God, the God who endured the sense of forsakenness when one approaches one's own death. But Paul's answer to that is language that has affirmed our faith through the ages. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We affirm this in memorial services in, in many contexts. And thus we really have to rely on that promise in faith that there really is no calamity, no circumstance, nothing 
in this entire world that will ever separate us from God in this life or in the next. For this we give thanks. Amen.